This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Okay, um, does that work? Great. Hey, y'all. It's good to see you and to be with you tonight. And this is this is great to actually be together and not be behind a screen. And for those of you who are over there, um, glad to be with you all tonight. Hope you can join us next week in person, um, which we'll do again out here. So welcome. If this is your first time here, we're so glad to have you. Um, as Ella said at the beginning, uh, RUF is a campus ministry, and we exist not just for Christians, but for people who are curious, people who are, who are investigating the claims of Christianity. Also, um, for people who are skeptical, who um, uh, have something, some, have beef with God or with the Christian message, or, or wherever you're coming from, we want you to know that we want this to be a place that you're welcome, and you're welcome to bring your questions, and your doubts, and your concerns um, because we want to help you figure out what it is that you believe and why you believe it. Um, we find Jesus to be intellectually compelling and morally beautiful and worthy of our worship. And um, invite you to, to discover for yourself as he's revealed in scripture. And so uh, what we've been doing this semester is we've been looking at the minor prophets. And what are the minor prophets? They are not called minor because they're short books, but because they were short people. That one's for Ellis. Um, it's because, it's not that, it's because they look for rocks underground. Nope, it's because they were underage. All right, I'm done. Those were all for Ellis. Those were all for Ellis. Um, I got all my minor prophet jokes out. All right, they're called minor prophets because they're short books. These are short uh, prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament. And we're studying them because my assumption is that it's not something that most of us are familiar with. As we read the Bible, it's the, we, we might know bits and pieces of the Minor Prophets, but they're, uh, they're dense. They're like these um, uh, postcards from another planet 2,500 years ago across cultural and language barriers. But they do pack a punch. They're these vivid snapshots. They're not these long, drawn-out documentaries. These vivid snapshots. And they contain some of the Bible's most vivid and graphic images of God's just judgment. And also some of the most beautiful pictures of God's grace. um, His generous grace. And their life challenging. They can actually change the way that you live. And so we've been looking at one prophet a week and studying it and looking at a key text together. And this week we're going to take up the prophet Micah. So Micah was one of the earliest of the minor prophets. He wrote around 750 to 700 BC. And for context, uh, the first cultural context, the first, I guess historical context, the first Olympic Games was right in the middle of that, 776 BC, right before that. Historical context in the Bible, King David lived around 1000 BC and his kingdom lasted till about 930 and then it split up. And then 200 years later in 722, the northern kingdom, split into two kingdoms, the north and the south, the northern kingdom was invaded by, um, by the Assyrians and wiped out, completely wiped out. And so Micah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital city of Jerusalem was, around the time of the northern kingdom's destruction. And these are really dark times. Dark times of unbelief and social oppression and injustice in all of Israel. 
And into this context, God calls Micah to be a prophet, to function as his lawyer, to, to take his words and to proclaim them to his people, to his unbelieving, unfaithful people. And if you could summarize the book of, of Micah into one sentence, it would be this question. What is it that God wants? What does God want? And the answer that Micah gives us is that God wants his kingdom to fill the earth, the kingdom of God to fill the earth. Um, so when I was in seventh grade, just about every weekend, I watched one of three movies, Dumb and Dumber, Billy Madison, and Happy Gilmore. I told this to my kids earlier, and they're, they just laughed at the name of the title, Dumb and Dumber, for like five minutes. I'm like, I get to show these to you. Or I, I, maybe that's not the thing the father should bequeath to his children. But anyways, so um, it also explains a lot about me. Um, so Happy Gilmore, if you're unfamiliar with this movie, I highly recommend you get some friends together and watch it because it's hilarious. Um, but it's a story, uh, it's Adam Sandler, it's a story of this golfer who is a great, a horrible hockey player, but he finds out he can hit a golf ball really far, and, but he's horrible at putting. And there's a scene early on when he it has this retired um, pro, Chubbs Peterson, who lost one of his hands to an alligator, um, who helps him with his putting. And they go to this putt-putt place, and there's this, this, this giant clown hole and he gets so angry he's about to hit the clown with his club and Chubbs pulls him back and he tells him hey I want you to imagine your happy place so you get Adam Sandler squinching his face up real tight and you know kind of the foggy like wavy lines and it goes to his happy place you hear this like ethereal Inya heart music and then um this is Happy Gilmer's happy place his girlfriend walks out in lingerie holding two pitchers of beer and lays down on a bed and then his grandmother who's poor is hitting the jackpot on a slot machine winning piles of gold coins um here's the thing why do i tell you this story i think when we imagine the kingdom of god when we when we when we think about what the kingdom of god is it probably feels more like chubbs asking happy to picture his happy place than anything else we, what do we think of when we think of the kingdom of God? Not surprisingly, our picture, when we imagine this, our picture of the kingdom of God looks an awful lot like happy's happy place. Maybe not the exact details, um, but it's filled with things that we think will make us happy. Personal wishes, personal desires come true. Here's what I'm driving at. Often in the eyes of our hearts and our imaginations, God's kingdom looks more like our kingdom than anything else. And this is why I'm thankful for our passage tonight, because in Micah 6, 1 through 8, God gives us a clear picture of the kingdom of God. What this biblical phrase means and what it looks like for us to long for it and to even participate in it here on earth. So I want to summarize Micah 6, 1 through 8 in one sentence for you. It's the kingdom of God looks like our justice, mercy, and humility motivated by God's rescue. The kingdom of God looks like our mercy, our justice, our humility motivated by God's rescue. In other words, God rescues us from ourselves to live for others by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And he gives us this, this deep and permanent picture of the kingdom of God in two parts, and that's how we're going to take it tonight. There's actually, I put an outline in the slides if you want to follow along there, but the first part, we're going to look at the first five verses as the motivation of the kingdom of God, the why, like why should we love God and others? And then verses six through eight, the manner of the kingdom of God, the way that we love others and God, what the, what the kingdom looks like in 3D. So the motivation and the manner of the kingdom of God. So first, the motivation of the kingdom of God, the why of loving. So our, our passage opens on 
it opens with an indictment. It, it, it's a courtroom scene that we see. And this word that's translated indictment or in the translation that SK read, accusation, is a Hebrew word reeb, which is a legal term. It's an ancient Near Eastern legal procedure. It's like the second half of a Law and Order episode. So, you know, the first half, it's the murder and the investigation. The second half is in the courtroom when they're actually doing um, the legal proceeding. That's what we have here. This trial scene with a prosecutor and a defendant and a judge and a jury and evidence. That's what's going on here. And in verse 1, God summons his people. Ancient Israel, the church, RUF at Wake Forest, he, he summons his people together to a court appearance to defend ourselves. Verse 2, God sets his jury we're told the jury is the mountains. Now, why the mountains? Because they've been there the whole time. They are watching Israel. The hills have eyes. I, don't, I haven't seen that, but that's what I was thinking. Like, they're watching Israel. Mountains of Israel, are these, they're mighty enough to weigh such a big spiritual accusation and to have witnessed God's people failing him. This might be like um, God setting your phone up on the jury box. Little did you know that the microphone and the camera have been on the whole time. Not only what you, not, has not only heard and seen you, but has also read your thoughts. And that phone is in the jury box. So you're the defendant. God is the judge. God is the prosecutor. And he stacked the jury. And then in verse 3, he brings in his indictment. And instead of coming at us with the full force of what we deserve to hear... He pleads with us. Instead of saying, do you know what you've done to me? Do you know how you've wearied me? Answer me. Instead, he says, what have I done to you that has led to your disobedience, to your rebellion, to your wickedness? How have I wearied you? It's like a parent who looks at their disobedient child for the hundredth time and says, what did I do to make you not want to obey me? The difference is that parents do plenty to make their children not want to obey them, but God is perfect and has done nothing. And this isn't how courtrooms work. Rather than laying into his people or laying out the evidence, God pleads with us and then recounts the story of his love and rescue. One of my friends says that this scene should feel awkward to us. We've braced ourselves for a verbal spanking, and instead we get the Lord of everything that is, the King of the universe, rehearsing his love for us. But I don't want you to miss this in in this surprise. He isn't just giving a history lesson in these next few verses. He's proving his love to his people through history. And this is what he does in verses 4 through 5. And he focuses our attention on the Exodus. Now, the Exodus is told in the Bible from the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And it's the story of God rescuing his people from 430 years of slavery in Egypt leading them through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land. Now, why does God focus on this story? Why this one? It's because this is the story of God's rescue, and it serves as the model, it serves as the paradigm of every rescue mission that God goes on after it. This is the model of how God rescues people from sin and death. This is the model of how God rescues you. And using it here, this is what God's saying through Micah. He's saying, you must see yourself spiritually in the physical story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And then he focuses on four parts of the Exodus. The rescue, the shepherds, God's desire to bless his people, and the promised land. So first, the rescue. He says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Rescue you from spiritual slavery into freedom and dignity. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. 
You were enslaved to sin and he has redeemed you, bought you out of sin with his life, exchanged his life for yours on the cross. Then he points to the shepherds, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. These are the God-appointed leaders that gathered up Israel and led them through the dry spiritual places in the wilderness. Moab, Moab, Shatim, and Gilgal, teaching them who they were as God's beloved people. Friends, this is, what God, this is what Jesus does for you in the church, teaching you about his goodness and grace and your place in this story. He has given you pastors and elders to shepherd you through this life. Third, God's desire to bless his people despite their sin. This is what he's talking about with Balak, the king of Moab. He tried to get the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, but God intervenes, and instead of cursing God's people, Balaam blessed God's people. This is what Jesus um, continues to do for you in the new covenant. He took the curse on your behalf and gives you the full blessing of God. And then finally, the promised land. Just as ancient Israel was no longer enslaved in Egypt and had a place in Canaan, which is now modern-day Israel-Palestine geographically, just as certain as this is the reality that those who belong to Jesus will have a complete and ultimate rest in God's heavenly kingdom. Here is what God is saying through Micah. You must see yourself spiritually in the physical story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. But why? Why has God done all this? He answers this in verse 5. So that we may know the righteous acts of the Lord. It's all for his glory. All for his glory displayed through his redemption. But even with the love of God traced through history, even with reading this on the other side of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, even um, as Miles Cyrus' his dad liked to say, if it came through the nail-scarred hands of my Savior, it can only be for my good. Even knowing that all the things we have come through the nail-scarred hands of our Savior, they must be for our good. Even knowing these things, the takeaway from these first five verses is that most of us, a lot of the time, are weary with God even though we have no reason or no right to be. Now, why is this? The pages of scripture are clear that we should be rejoicing in the salvation he has won for us in Jesus Christ, but instead we're tired of him. We're weary, we're worn out, we're exhausted. Why do we grow weary with God? Here's what I think it is. I think it's because we think that perfection is better than redemption. And here's what I mean. We are more concerned with doing it right, with getting it perfect, than we are with praising the one who became all that is wrong about us on our behalf. My counselor told me this story. He said he was uh, talking with uh, a friend who's a a pastor, and he was telling a story about being in conversation with with a non-Christian about the Christian faith, and they're having these conversations about the tough questions, the, the hard things, uh, wrestling with the hard things about Christianity. And so they talk about um, the, our faith and science compatible and um, uh, what, is, what is God, what does the God of the Bible have to say about American politics and what does God have to say about human sexuality and why is there anything and not nothing? And then finally, the man asked the pastor this. He said, okay, if God is good and his creation is good, then why did God allow sin to enter into his creation? It's a fantastic question. If God is good and his creation is good, then why did God allow sin to enter his his creation? How would you answer this? Why did God allow sin to enter into his creation? 
Here's what this pastor said. I think this is brilliant. He said, God allowed sin to enter into his creation because redemption is better than perfection. Redemption is better than perfection. But we don't believe this. We think that perfection is better than redemption. And this makes us grow weary with God because he wants you to experience his redemption in your life. He does not want you to try to be perfect. But why do we do this? Why do we pursue perfection? In her book, Perfecting Ourself to Death, Lauren Winter says this. She says, there are two passions of the heart of perfection or perfectionism. Two passions at the heart of perfectionism. The first is a hatred of being a limited person in an uncertain world. And the second is a love for the illusion of control and the possibility of making life predictable. Feeling threatened, the perfectionist tries to feel in control by assuming that he or she is or can be omniscient and omnipotent, all-knowing and all-powerful. Control over oneself and one's environment is essential in order to avoid feeling helpless and powerless. Y'all, this is deeply indicting for me too. This is why we set unrealistic goals about our time and commitments. Because we hate being a limited person in an uncertain world. And this is why we're so good at making to-do lists because we have an enduring romance with the illusion of control. So what does perfectionism look like at Wake Forest? Two words, effortless competence. Do it all and make it look easy. Effortless competence. You are an exec on two organizations. You are double majoring with a 4.0. You're training for a marathon. You're well-dressed. You've got perfectly curated social media. Got a great summer internship, shooting below 90 on the golf course, and volunteering with kids in some fashion. And you make it look effortless, right? But it's not good. Like, it's not effortless. At Stanford, they call this the Stanford duck. On the surface, everything looks calm and collected, but under the water, your feet are paddling like crazy. So what is perfectionism? Um, My counselor defines perfectionism as three things. Performing for God, pushing yourself, and pleasing others. Performing for God, pushing yourself, and pleasing others. And y'all, that slays me. That's my default mode. At a fundamental level, I believe that perfection is better than redemption. And that puts me at odds with the God of the universe. Does this describe you? Like, Do you feel like you are performing for God? or you're constantly pushing yourself, or you, that you have to please others. Why do we do this? Remember what Lauren Winter said. She says we do it because we have a hatred of being a limited person and a love for the illusion of control. She writes, we do not like being finite and limited. When things feel insecure and dangerous, we try to take control of our world. Sometimes we try to control other people's worlds as well. The problem is, at the heart of it all, that we do not trust the God who is in control. Our problem is we think perfection is better than redemption. But the God who made you, the God who made everything, is the God who entered space and time as an Aramaic-speaking Jewish man 2,000 years ago, who took on the limitations of mortality, gave up actual control in order to accomplish redemption. And this God says that redemption is better than perfection. So back to Micah. We're in the courtroom with God He says to you, how have I wearied you? We respond, I'm trying to be perfect, but I'm exhausted. And God's response, my redemption is better than perfection. 
God is more concerned with you knowing his love for you than he is with what's on your resume. He cares far more about you knowing his forgiveness than he does about you not sinning. He cares far more about you learning to call him father than he does about you making him proud. He cares far more about you collapsing into his open arms than he does about you pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. He cares far more about you telling the truth about your brokenness and sin and his healing and his forgiveness than he does about you showing him in the world how good you're trying to be. Friends, if you're tired, if you're wearied by God, it's because you're doing it wrong. Trying to do it right is doing it wrong. That's what he's saying. God wants you to be motivated by his redemption, not your perfection. Micah shows us that this is the motivation for the kingdom of, the motivation for the kingdom of God is the rescue of God. It is his redemption. Why do we do anything for God at all? It's because he's first loved us. And if this is what verses one to five are showing us, verse six and eight, six to eight show us that justice, mercy, and humility are the manner of the kingdom of God. The motivation in the manner. Manner comes from this Latin word manus, which means hands. So means it's something that we do with regularity, a custom or practice, our manners. It's answering Ricky Bobby's question, I'm not sure what to do with my hands. Anyways, um, it's a question, what am I supposed to do? How do I live? What is the ethic of the kingdom? What does God want for me? But before we unpack justice and mercy and humility, um, look at how God through Micah leads us to this, these conclusions. Remember, God puts us on the witness stand and then asks us, how have I wearied you? Calling out our perfectionism, showing us his redemption. And then in verse six, our hearts answer God's plea by crying out, what do you want from me, God? And then verse six and seven, we give God this laundry list of ever more impossible things to sacrifice. Starting with precious yearling calves to thousands of sacrificed rams and 10,000 rivers of oil before God. And the climax of this list is child sacrifice, which shows you just how exasperated this cry is. I mean, you can imagine a frustrated friend like yelling into your hurt saying, what do you want from me? Do you want me to go home? Fine. Do you want me to never come back again? Fine. You want me to go die in a car wreck? Fine. That'll solve your problems. Like you, you know this cry but that's not what you want. And that's definitely not what God wants. Here's what this is saying. God, God doesn't want your religious hype. He confronts your perfectionism with his redemption. And he doesn't want you to respond with some sort of religious performance. He's not asking you to prove to him that you like him. Why? Because none of these sacrifices actually look like the kingdom of God. Well, then what does God want? And he tells us in verse eight, he tells us what is good. He tells us what the kingdom of God looks like. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And these three commandments summarize all 613 commandments in the Old Testament. This is how we participate in God's kingdom. To quote Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel, he writes, To live by these laws is to live within time the life of eternity. To live by these is to live within time the life of eternity. That is the kingdom of God's eternity, its majesty and goodness and truth come from the presence of justice and mercy and humility. But if we're honest, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly are as overwhelming as the 613 perfect laws to follow, right? Reading the news right now is overwhelming. 
so much oppression, so much injustice, corruption, arrogance. What do you do with this? Like when you read the stories and you study the history of racial injustice in our country, or when you read about the genocide of the Uyghurs in China, if you read about the children in detention camps on our southern border, you, you read about the mental health crisis in our country, the cycles of violence and oppression around the world, not to mention growing global slavery, millions of children and forced prostitution, the prison industrial complex in our country and abroad, the suffering of the world is overwhelming. How do you respond? Remember, God loves redemption more than he loves perfection. The response God wants from you is not to fix it. It's not to perform or to push yourself, but he has redeemed you to be a part of his kingdom coming on earth as far as the curse is found. C.S. Lewis, um, in an essay he wrote called Why I'm Not a Pacifist, tackles this overwhelming challenge of kingdom work beautifully. This is what he says. This is in your bulletin if you want to read along. He says, I've received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives such as the abolition of the slave trade or prison reform or factory acts or tuberculosis, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice or health or peace. I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as well as we can. This is more useful than all the proposals for universal peace that have ever been made. And then to drive his point home, Lewis writes, the dentist who can stop one toothache is a greater human being than all who have some scheme for producing a perfectly healthy race. So let me offer a few ways that we can, as Lewis says, work quietly away at limited objectives, taking or tackling each immediate evil. Just a few quick applications of how we do the daily dentistry of mercy and justice and humility. Um, Here I'm getting a lot of help from Sid Druin and Ben Robertson and Joel Hammernick. So here's what they say. So first, doing justice. Doing justice is about giving people what they deserve. It's about giving people what they deserve. In the kingdom of God, everyone deserves to live freely and with dignity. So doing justice on a community level looks like trying to learn about and confront the, op- the oppression behind somebody's poverty. Maybe it's unaffordable housing or a lack of jobs. Maybe it's an immigration issue or family abuse. Whatever the case, we must understand that the gospel is not conservative. It doesn't always assume a person is poor because of bad choices alone. But how can we help? Doing justice requires sustained money or time. And as restrictions start opening up, maybe it looks like RUF partnering with Habitat for Humanity for a build or gathering some friends together at the soup kitchen downtown or helping with Wake Saturdays and making sandwiches to feed the homeless or getting together a group of folks when you're able to to serve with Campus Kitchen. And as we do this, we can begin to ask questions Why is there such a need here in Winston-Salem? And we can start working together towards some of the causes. Second, if doing justice is about giving people what they deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve. Loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve. In the kingdom of God, everyone deserves to live freely and with dignity, even if he or she is at fault for the subhuman way that they live. So loving mercy on a community level looks like entering into tragedies, whether those tragedies are self-inflicted addiction or some unforeseen natural disaster. And at Wake, for all the talk of pro-humanitate, 
there is a lot of self-interest, right? You study to get the grades to get the job or to get the grades to get into the right grad school. But what about that girl next to you in class? What if she's failing? What can you do to help her? Or what about that freshman that you see eating lunch by themselves every single day who still hasn't made any friends since he's come to wake? Will you give him the friendship he needs to stay in college? Like, why should you? Do they deserve your help? No. But that's exactly what mercy is. It's undeserved help. Giving people what they don't deserve because this is what God requires of us. And this is what God has done for us. So in this, we understand that the gospel is not liberal. It doesn't always assume a person is poor because of everyone else. So third, finally, if doing justice is about giving people what they deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve, then walking walking humbly with your God is recognizing that I don't deserve. Walking humbly with God is recognizing that I don't deserve. In the kingdom of God, even you and I deserve to live freely and with dignity. And walking humbly is not only the hardest of these three commands. In the Hebrew language, walk refers to the totality of our lives. Walking with humility is essential to doing justice and loving mercy. Remember what I said about perfectionism. We don't like being finite and limited. When things feel insecure and dangerous, we try to take control of the world. Sometimes we try to control other people's worlds as well. And the problem at the heart of it is that we don't trust that God is in control. Unless we understand that in everything we do, we need God, that we need God the way that a basketball needs air or a kite needs the wind, unless we understand that we need God, we will never be able to do justice and love mercy. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness for our unwillingness to go there. Without redemption, we're actually never going to try to do justice or love mercy fully. And we're going to be stuck in this rat race of our own perfectionism. We need the Holy Spirit's power to make us show up to do justice and to change our hearts to actually love mercy. So walking humbly at a community level looks like confronting the wrongs behind the mess in our life and other people's lives. That's justice. And for mercy, it looks like befriending the down and out around you and slowly telling them how Jesus changes people. It looks like walking and leading with a limp of repentance, not as people who are doing it perfectly, but as recovering perfectionists who are learning to believe that Jesus actually loves me despite my achievements. So what does God want from us? What is God's happy place? It is a vision of justice and mercy and humility. This is what God has rescued us to, to share in his happy place, to share, to be a part of the work of bringing his kingdom to bear into reality, to live and to work and to love in God's kingdom, wherever it is that he calls us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage And how clear you are with us that you long for us to know you as the God of our redemption. Thank you for inviting us into the story to make your story our story. And not only redeeming us, but sending us out into this great work of being a part of your kingdom as you build it on earth. Lord, thank you for these friends. Thank you for this night tonight that we get to be together. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd help them as they process this. Lord, um, help them to know your redemption and your kindness that you have for them in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.